So last week we talked about God expects us to foster unity and to live holy. We learned that living a worthy life costs. That humility is the virtue that keeps the unity of the spirit. And that we're to put off the old self and to put on the new self. We also learned the difference between cheap grace and real grace. Well, today, in verses 21 through 6-4, we learn a holy life includes submitting to others in the church and in marriage. And look at verse 21 there. Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. See, Paul's shifting gears. He's shifting gears from talking about holy conduct to holy relationships. And this is really important. This verse kind of sets the stage for what he's going to tell us. This is a foundational command for Christian relationships, and it communicates two ideas. How believers in general should relate to each other in the church, and then how believers should relate to each other in marriage. So let's look at the first idea. The first idea of submission is a voluntary attitude of giving, of giving in. It's cooperating. It means to arrange yourself under or yield to others. It's the idea that believers in the church subject themselves to other believers, that they serve each other to reach a common goal. Now, it's not submission relating to following orders. This submission is, again, more about serving, cooperating. He isn't telling believers to obey each other. That's a different Greek word. He's calling us to work together as a team, to surrender to others for the sake of cooperation. See, believers in relationship with other believers should not be self-seeking. They shouldn't be self-assertive. In fact, they should consider others' interests more important than their own. One commentator said this, Let no man be so tenacious of his own will or his opinion in matters indifferent as to disturb the peace of the church. In all such matters, give way to each other and let love rule. See, our devotion to each other should compel us to work alongside each other. And in verses, uh, in 1 Corinthians 16, it, it the household of Stephanus really illustrates this. Listen to what it says. You know that the household of Stephanus have devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to submit to such people and to everyone who joins in the work and labors at it. See, believers in the body of Christ are one unit. We're like a company of soldiers. Each person works together for the purpose of the mission. And the mission is to serve each other and to build up the church, to build God's kingdom. And Paul tells us what our motive should be, right? It's not a self-seeking motive, but it's out of reverence for Christ. It's that deep respect for Jesus that you don't want to disappoint him or grieve him. Have you ever had a teacher? Or maybe it was your parent. You had such a high respect for them. 
that they didn't have to give you a spank and they didn't have to give you a consequence. You just didn't want to disappoint them because you didn't want to make them upset. You had that kind of love for them. That's the kind of motive we should have in serving one another. We love Jesus so deeply. We just don't want to disappoint him. So I'm going to serve you and you're going to serve me. We're going to do it God's way because we love him so much. Well, when we looked at behavior last week, we learned that our behavior should look different than the world's. Well, our relationships should look different too. You know, we're children of the light, Paul says. The world should see that reflected in how we treat each other. They should witness the supernatural unity of the Spirit in our church and in our marriages. John 17, Jesus prays. He says this. He's talking to the Father. He says, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then, then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you've loved me. See, unity in the church and in marriage substantiates the fact that God sent Jesus Christ to the world and that we are his beloved. Let me say that again. Unity in the church and in marriage substantiates the fact that God sent Jesus Christ into the world and that we are his beloved. You know, it remind, when I was putting this together, it reminded me of an old song. I want you to sing it with me, if you know it. We are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. We are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. And we pray that all unity may one day be restored. And they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. Yes, they'll know we are Christians by our love. I used to sing that in youth group. Loved it. Loved it. But it really encompasses everything that we're learning here. When we're united in the church and in our, marriage, in our marriages, it's our love that is that powerful witness that the world takes note of. Well, as we look at verses 22 through 24 there in chapter 5, Paul continues his train of thought of believers submitting to one another, and he applies it to the idea of submission in marriage, he says this, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Now here, the word submit, it communicates the idea to be under rank. Think about, think about an army. An army has their generals. They have their colonels, their majors, their captains, their sergeants, their privates, and it's organized in levels of rank. It doesn't really have anything to do with the person's ability or their value, or who's mentally superior or mentally inferior. The unit functions based on the order of authority. Soldiers are obligated, right? They're obligated to, to respect, to submit to the senior ranking official. A, a private in the army, he might be a better person. 
He might be smarter, more talented than a general, but because of the appointed order of authority, that private still must submit. Well, God has an appointed order of authority for the Christian marriage, for all marriages. And it's this. The husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. And the wife is commanded to yield to her husband's leadership. Now, this, is, this again is out of reverence for Christ. She voluntarily gives in. She accepts her husband's God-given legitimate authority over her and the affairs of the home. She holds in her heart a respectful readiness to follow his lead and does so when it's time. You see, God structured marriage in this way because it's one body. Think of the company of soldiers. It's one. It's a unit. It's a team. And marriage should reflect the unity of the Spirit just like the church. Now, when you think of it like that, every marriage has a mission, has a purpose. And the mission, Paul tells us later on, is to be a picture of Jesus' relationship with his church. So as Jesus laid down his life for the church, the husband is supposed to lay down his life for his wife. As the as the church then yields and submits to Jesus, the wife is then to submit to her husband. And this shows, this shows Jesus' relationship with his church. I like this. One commentator said submission, you can think of it like this, as submission. The wife comes under the mission. The wife says, I'm going to put myself under that mission. That mission is more important than my individual's desires. I'm not putting myself below my husband. I'm putting myself below the mission God has for my marriage and for my life. Isn't that good? See, Paul said, and then Paul says, wives submit to their husbands as to the Lord. And this, I think, I've, in my life, I've seen some abuse in this verse. Wives, submit to your husband as to the Lord. You know, Paul's not saying that a wife should submit to her husband as though, God, as though the husband were God himself. That's not what he's saying. Or that the wife absolutely, unconditionally submits to everything without question. That's not what he's saying. That the wife is the husband's slave. That's not what he's saying. You know, there's been so many people who have used this verse and they've dishonored God and abused what the Bible says. What Paul is saying, Paul is saying that the wife's motivation to submit should be to the Lord. See, wives, it's part of your Christian conduct. Submitting for Jesus' sake because he told you to. You want to please him. It has nothing to do with the husband's intelligence or giftedness or capability, but it has everything to do with honoring the Lord Jesus. 
And I want you to know that this is God's design for marriage. And when a wife doesn't submit, you're sinning against God. All you have to do is counsel for a while and you find out how when we don't do things God's way, it creates intense stress and strife in the home. The wife goes against the pattern that God has instituted and it's like taking a square peg and trying to fit it into a round, pole, a round hole. It just doesn't work. There's no real unity. It's not fulfilling the mission, and it certainly doesn't reflect the church's relationship with Jesus. So here's the principle this morning. Unity of the Spirit in marriage is fostered by the submission of a godly wife. So wives on a scale of 1 to 10 this morning, one being no submission and 10 being fully submissive, where are you on that scale? What excuses have you created to justify not submitting to your husband? How would your relationship be different if you practice submission? Well, my wife and I believe in doing our best to follow God's pattern, and I'm thankful for that. I, I have an extremely godly wife, and I really appreciate her. She allows me to be the leader, and she respects me. I lead in spiritual matters and our finances, how we raise the kid, not kids, and I appreciate her counsel in more ways uh, most ways, I should say, she's, she has more wisdom than I do. And unfortunately, unfortunately, sometimes I get it wrong. And I want to tell you a personal story. About four years ago, I sensed that God was telling us that we needed to sell our house, that we were going to get a bigger house for our growing family. And so I went to Megan and I said, Megan, God is, I feel like God is leading us to sell our house. And she said, okay. And she started praying about it. And as I was praying and just trying to find out where God was leading, we found a house. It was a foreclosed home on some land. And as we prayed about it, we felt like, oh man, God, this is the house you want for us. This is it. We felt, I personally felt like God was confirming it through prayer, through his word, through the counsel of others, through signs. I mean, I, I felt like I had all my ducks in a row, that this was what God wanted for us. Now, this was a foreclosed home, so we got in touch with Jason Garraway, and Jason Garraway started pursuing this home for us. And we had to wait several months to get it because it was a foreclosed home, but we just were certain that when that day came, we were going to get that home. Well, the time came, we sold our house in faith, put it up on the market, 
everything worked out there. God answered every prayer for the, sell, for the selling of our home. Well, when the house finally came through where we could purchase it, it fell through. Now we were homeless. And I tell you, my faith took a spiritual nosedive. God, how could you do this? We were praying about it. I was fasting. I was reading your word. I was listening to you. Well, thank God, Mark Bradshaw, back there in the back, out of nowhere comes up to us and says, you know, Jason, just in case this whole house thing doesn't work out. He did this two weeks before it, before it didn't work out. He said, just in case it doesn't work out, you and your family would be welcome to stay in my basement. I thought to myself, no, it's going to work out, Mark. And lo and behold, it didn't work out, and we spent the next nine months in Mark's basement. Now, that was a humbling experience for the leader of the home. Because it wasn't that God didn't get it right. It was that I didn't get it right. And I thought, God, would, you know, what about my wife? She's not going to trust my leadership anymore. And the truth is, is that she did struggle with my leadership after that. But she came to me and acknowledged, hey, I don't even know if I trust the fact that you're listening to God anymore. And that was a very difficult pill for me to swallow. But it was all part of a humbling process that God needed to bring me lower so he could teach me some stuff. My point in all this is, wives, your husband is not always going to get it right. Now, thankfully, by the grace of God, she's still with me. But that's what it is. It's grace. It's grace. Your husband might not be the most spiritual person in the world. He may not be the most godly person. He may not make right decisions every single time. But the truth is, is that this is God's design. Submit to him and pray for him. Offer him the counsel that God gives you to offer him. Because we are human. And God knows that. Well, then in verses 25 through 6-4, husbands are commanded to lead and train their family. Notice that Paul dedicates three verses to wives and eight verses to husbands. I thought this was funny because I thought we're kind of hard-headed sometimes. We need to hear this. Well, I believe he did that because he wants the husbands to know how serious your role is as the leader of the home. See, God is holding us accountable. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for. That's a high order. Then he goes on to tell us three ways that Jesus demonstrated his love for his church. He said he gave himself up for. This is agape love. It's love based on decision, not emotions. It's sacrificial, self-denying love. One commentator said, to model Christ's sacrificial example, 
means that a husband must hold back nothing, not even his very life in his dedication to his bride. Wow. See, Jesus tirelessly served his people here on earth. He put our needs and our desires above his own. And in the same way, we're called to tirelessly serve our wives. Husbands, you are to put your wife first and yourself second. That's real leadership. Then Paul tells us that he washed the church through his word. Husbands, you're the spiritual leader of the home. We're to teach and to model scriptural principles. We're to answer spiritual questions. We're to encourage and to pray for our wives. I want you to know something. I noticed something. When I'm not praying for my wife, the devil steps in and attacks her. But the days that I do pray for her, it's like God puts a mighty hedge around her and he protects her from all that junk. And I noticed that recently. I kind of went through a period where mm, not, I just got busy. I'm not going to pray for my wife today. And then all of a sudden, God put it on my heart, you're not praying for your wife. And I started praying for her again, and lo and behold, I noticed that changes started happening. Guys, pray for your wives. Pray for your families. And then the third thing, he said he presented the church without stain or blemish. You know that husbands are called to spiritually preserve their wives by leading them to do God's will. See, the husband makes Jesus the Lord of the marriage, places him at the center, and allows him to guide it. And as God reveals his will, the husband leads according to God's will. See, a Christian husband can't lead if he's not following Jesus himself. As a wife submits to the husband, a husband must submit to Christ. That's the principle. In verse 28 and 29, husbands are told to love their wives as their own body. And Paul's point here is really clear. He says, the wife is the husband's body. She's part of himself. As Eve was part of Adam, taken out of his side, so the husband and the wife share this sacred oneness. And part of the responsibility for a husband is to provide for her, to care for her. See, men, worldly leadership says this. I'm your head, so take your orders from me, and you must do whatever I want. Godly headship says, I'm your head, so I must care for you and serve you. Worldly submission says, you must submit to me, so here are the things I want you to do for me. Godly submission says, you must submit to me, so I'm accountable before God for you. I must care and serve you. Do you see the difference? Well, then Paul quotes Genesis 22 and 24. It says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. They will become one flesh. 
He says, this is a great mystery, but now it's been revealed. Thousands of years, they believed that scripture in Genesis was only about marriage, or was only about uh, marriage. But now, Paul says this is a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. Listen to what Lloyd-Jones says. This is true in regard to the pattern of the first man and the first woman. Woman was made at the beginning as the result of an operation which God performed on man. How does the church come into being? As the result of an operation which God performed on the second man, his only begotten, beloved son on Calvary's hill. A deep sleep fell upon Adam. A deep sleep fell upon the Son of God. He gave up the ghost. He expired. And there in that operation, the church was taken out. As the woman was taken out of Adam, so the church was taken out of Christ. The woman was taken out of the side of Adam, and it is the Lord's bleeding, wounded side that the church comes. Isn't that great? Wow, that spoke to me this week. In verse 1 through 4, Paul addresses the man's role as a father. He says, fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up by training them and instructing instructing them the ways of the Lord. See, a godly father's job is to, is to disciple, to shepherd his children, not only provide for their physical needs, but their spiritual needs, to model those Christian virtues. Did you know, dads, that children are watching and they will copy what you do much more than they copy what you say? Children follow examples. And that's a, that's a heavy thing for men. We need to be examples in what we speak and how we treat our wife. If I treat my wife disrespectfully, my children are going to pick up on that. And they're going to start talking disrespectful to my wife. If I treat her like she doesn't matter, my children are going to pick up on that. We model, we model and teach our children the love that Jesus wants us to have. There's a principle here. Godly husbands and fathers lead their homes by submitting to Jesus. So husbands, in what ways are you serving your wives in day-to-day -day tasks in the home? Are you the spiritual leader in the home? And if so, how are you training your wife and children to become more like Jesus? When you do feel like Jesus is leading your family, when will you make time to discuss this with your wife? And then my last division is verses 6, 5 through 23. And then that division, it says this, do all work to honor Jesus and that we are in a spiritual war. In verses 5 through 9, Paul gives instruction to slaves and their masters, but it could easily be implied to an employee or an employer. Verse 7 says, serve wholeheartedly if you were serving the Lord, not people 
because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether slave or free. I thought this was interesting. God actually cares how we work for our employers. It's not as insignificant, maybe, as we think. And he rewards us on behalf of that. Then in verses 10 through 20, Paul tells us that we are in a spiritual war and we must put on the armor of God. He says in verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Folks, we need to be prepared. Paul's point is there's going to be a fight and you need strength from God to be able to win that battle. I think he gets the idea from 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 6. It says, David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. But David found strength in the Lord his God. See, we will never win any battle against Satan on our own. I'm going to say that again. You will never win any battle against Satan on your own. But here's the thing. Too often we try to fight him in our own. We take him on head to head. Logically. We try to argue him away. But the truth is, is Satan is smarter, he's stronger. There is absolutely no way that we can win a battle against him unless it's in the power of the Holy Spirit. We cannot do it. And that's why Paul says, put on the armor to stand against the devil's schemes. Well, what are the devil's schemes? The five Ds, right? Deception. He twists and spins the truth. Doubt. He causes us to doubt God's word. Discouragement. He causes us to be so disheartened or paralyzed with fear that we're no good for God. Diversion. He makes things that are wrong look attractive. And then defeat. He uses shame, guilt, and self-doubt to make us feel like failures. I was beat up this week. Discouragement. My uncle passed away, who we'd been praying for. I thought, what? The church is praying. Some of us are fasting, and he dies? Okay, well, that's check number one. Praying for the election. Doesn't go the way I want it. I'm fasting, I'm praying. How do you deal with disappointment when God doesn't answer your prayer? When God doesn't work it the way you thought that it was going to work out? Well, then here comes Satan. When you see all your fasting and your praying, it really didn't do anything anyway. Well, you know what's going to happen to your country. You, know, you just get ready. Just get ready. Everything's going to fall apart. And, yep. They'll have you and your, your friends in jail before long. You know, these are the arrows of discouragement that Satan shoots at us. And I realized, wait a minute, I'm trying to logically reason to myself why these things aren't true. 
God said, put on the armor. Get your shield up. This is not my word. These are lies. You trust me. I heard your prayers. I saw you fast. I'm still the Lord over the United States of America. You trust me and you listen to me. You know, sometimes we need one of those gut checks. Caitlin, or Kathy Littleton writes this. When you're feeling isolated or lonely, Satan is lurking. When pornography is available, a diversion is being created. When criticism blossoms into bitterness in your heart, Satan fans the flames. When past sin keeps being replayed on the wall of your heart, Satan's running the projector. When you are too tired, too weary, or too depleted, he knows you're vulnerable. And when you're facing one wall in bed and your husband or wife the other, well, Satan takes note. <laughs> Doesn't he? See, our struggle isn't against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual force of evil in the heavenly realms. We're not battling against people. It may look like that, but it's not. People are simply being used for his purposes. And you know how fierce these battles are. If you want to get an idea of how fierce these spiritual battles are, take a look at Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 through 9. You'll see the intensity. So Paul says, put on the armor of God. He says it two times. This is super important. Well, what is it? It's the belt of truth. It's taking the scriptures and surrounding ourselves with the scriptures committing ourselves to what God says. It's the breastplate of righteousness. It's Jesus' own imputed righteousness into our lives. But it's also living a righteous life, keeping short accounts. When the Holy Spirit convicts you, you don't wait till you say your, your prayers at bedtime. You deal with it right then. It's the shoes of the gospel being grounded in the message that saved us. It's the shield of faith. It's that invisible force field of faith that surrounds us. I mean, think of Daniel. Here he is in the lion's den, and he's got lions surrounding him, ready to chomp him down, and he, they can't touch him because of his faith. That's that shield of faith. It's the helmet of salvation. Knowing that we belong to God brings us hope, hope that this world doesn't have. It's the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And then he says in verse 10, pray in the Spirit. So how do you put it on? Declare it in prayer every morning. Here's what I do. Lord, today clothe me in your armor. I put on the helmet of salvation. I take up your breastplate as my righteousness. I buckle your truth around my waist. I fit my feet in the gospel of peace. I take your shield of faith and your sword of the spirit. I mean, can you imagine running into battle completely naked with no weapons. None of us would do that. But yet we do it every day. We go to work. We have interactions with our family. And yet spiritually, we're not clothed in any armor. We have no weapons. And Satan is just picking us off one by one. Here comes the thoughts. Here comes the discouragement. Here comes the lies. Here comes the temptation, and we're defenseless.
because we're not clothed in the armor. Here's my principle. Believers must stand firm in God's mighty power, clothed in His armor to defeat Satan. That's the only way we can defeat him. I've had many battles, and I know I'm just about, I'm, I'm over time. But I've had many, many battles that would have gone completely different if I was relying on his strength. If I would have been clothed in his armor, I probably wouldn't have lost. That's the challenge this morning. When you fight spiritual battles, do you engage the enemy in your own strength or God's mighty power? What battles are you currently fighting and what pieces of armor could you learn more about and apply?